Welcome back. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com, and this is the Insight is Capital podcast. My very special guest today is Cole Smead, CEO and Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management. Cole, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm, I'm very excited about our conversation today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This will be fun. So, Cole, before we begin, I'd like to introduce you for the benefit of those who don't know you. Cole is both the chief executive officer and a portfolio manager at Smead Capital Management, where he provides oversight for all company operations. He's the ultimate decision maker for investment choices in the firm's international equity portfolios. Cole brings his, I would say, highly understated expertise to every aspect of the company's investment strategies. He's been an integral part of the firm since its establishment in 2007. Before joining Smead Capital Management, Cole worked as a financial advisor at Wachovia Securities in Scottsdale, Arizona. Cole is also a member of the CFA Institute and CFA Society, where he has been helping to inform and foster a renaissance in fundamental, active, bottom-up investing for investors through a low-turnover, differentiated value discipline, seeking wonderful companies to build wealth. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening. And while the music's playing, please hit that subscribe button. And if you like the podcast, we invite you to leave a review at Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Cole, welcome. It's really wonderful to have you. Before we get started, tell us about the genesis of your firm, Smead Capital Management, and then maybe we can get into your investment philosophy and personally, what made you get into the business in the first place? It's a great question. I consider myself a blessed individual in so many ways. Uh, I can tell you that God loves me. You know, I had the blessing of having a father who got in the investment business in 1980 uh, with Drexel Burnham Lambert. Dad was in the retail brokerage business up until uh, really the early 1990s and created this discipline um, back in the early 90s, but started using it uh, for private clients on a discretionary basis back in 93. So what I love is, um, you know, that's just a rich legacy to be born into and want to grow and, and foster, uh, to your point earlier, and, and, and develop. Um, I love that our eight criteria has been around since, you know, 30 years ago. And yet at the same time, the criteria doesn't change. Markets do. And you, you get presented some really interesting things, but I have a huge appreciation for, you know, like I mentioned earlier, how much uh, my dad's legacy has blessed me and um, how much he's informed me and taught me as an investor and, and really, you know, created uh, me to be the man I am. Um, to your point about our firm, uh, you know, we started in 07. We launched our first U.S. mutual fund back in 08. Um, you know, early on, it was like, hey, great, you're going to get in the mutual fund business. You have a public track record. It sounds really adorable. Um, we had to learn a lot as investors about how right. to distribute a mutual fund, um, you know, what that looks like in the U.S. context. I would go further to say, um, you know, we ended up launching a, a Luxembourg-based uh, USITS fund um, in 2013. We've learned a lot about, you know, call it global distribution uh, with, the, with the offshore business. 
Um, and what we love is, you know, we can serve investors, you know, pretty much globally um, between those two fund structures. Um, you know, the only place that we actually have any issue is like in a retail Canadian context. So if any advisors out there know of a great Canadian partner, I'm all ears. But um, uh, we also launched our international equity uh, strategy in early 15 and then turned that into a U.S. mutual fund in early 20, uh, 22, pardon me, 2022. And um, so, we, you know, we look at this where it's, it's a big world. Um, you know, we don't have to know everything about every company. Um, we want to use our eight criteria to find things that interest us. Just like, um, you know, as you and I talked before, um, not every book interests me. Not every book right. pulls me in. Um, the same thing happens in stocks. There's certain things you gravitate because of your personality, your discipline. And um, I think the creative process of learning is really what drives our investing. Fantastic. And, and um, Cole, what... what uh, other than maybe might seem like an obvious question, not every, not every, uh, uh, you know, not everyone wants to get into the business yeah. that, you know, their family's in, um, you know, often it's quite the opposite. Right. So, so yeah. I'm, I'm curious what, what inspired you? Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, your dad must've been a terrific teacher and, mm -hmm. you know, must've, must've been, the inspiration, but but is that is that so? I mean, is that what sort of inspired you to get into the business? Was watching your dad in action and and being interested in in you know what he was doing? I'm sure you must have had many fascinating conversations uh, when you were younger uh, before that time. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a couple that stand out to me. Um, I'll never forget when I was in first grade. I was seven years old, and it was you know like your dad comes to school day and teaches the kids what he does, and there wasn't a kid in the class that knew what a stock was. And I loved that. In other words, that yeah. was my edge. <laughs> I knew what he did. Yeah. Um, and so I think about that as just the, the idea of investing in something and it driving a higher return to where you wake up with more money in the future was just the most interesting thing to me. You know, it is the eighth wonder of the world, as Einstein said, uh, compounded interest. Right. So, um, so I think from early on, that, that always just tickled me, just the idea of that. Um, you know, you, you step further and, you know, you're young and I kind of looked at three things. I was like, okay, play major league baseball, fly Navy jets, a la top gun, or go in the investment business and baseball didn't end up working out. I played college baseball, but I was no savant. Um, and so I actually debated, you know, do I go in the investment business or, um, do I go, you know, fly Navy jets? And I actually called up a recruiter, a U.S. Marine recruiter and said, Hey, um, I'd like to learn about officers can at school. And I sat down with that individual and I quickly decided there's not a chance I want to, you know, do that. And that was a blessing in disguise because, um, you know, I know wonderful people in the armed services that are officers and that, that yeah. just was not what God wanted me to do. Um, and so, like you mentioned, I, I took my first job out of college. But if I back up a couple of years, I think the other thing that really crystallized me to continue to say, well, the investment business was the late 1990s. Um, I lived in Seattle at the time, and I'll never forget. It's you know 1999, and uh, you know I get a, I'd be at a sporting event that I'm playing in or practice or whatnot, and parents would come up and talk to my dad because they knew he was the stock picker. Right. And so, I mean, all he was really doing was telling them at that time, "Fear stock market failure. Fear stock market failure. Fear <laughs> stock market failure." And, and, and that's what you have to do in certain junctures. Don't do stupid things. Please, please don't do stupid things. And the reality is that really left a huge impression of the psychology of markets and how damaging they can be. And it's, it's very much of a monger truth is how I think about it. Most of the success in investing at times is just don't do stupid things. 
don't damage your capital um, because you leave yourself open for huge amounts of success in the future by not hurting yourself, in effect. And so I'll never forget that. I had a, I had a teacher in high school who knew, again, that you know that's what my dad did. And so in 99, he'd wanna talk stocks with me in between classes. And I'll, I won't name his name publicly, but I'll call him Mr. B for lack of a better term. And I said, Mr. B, you know, just go away from this one. It's just, it's gonna cause more damage than anything. And I knew that as a 16 year old kid, which is weird to think about. That's a, that's right. a, it's a very distinct oddity. Um, and I recognize that. Um, I knew that the damage uh, could be way larger than anything else. Now in reality, if you were a value stock picker then, you didn't do the stupid things. You didn't just save from the damage. You actually made money in the following two to three years in a pretty impressive way as markets crumbled you know, 50% using the S&P 500. So, um, so I just think it, it, it shows you, and this could be something we get into our discussion later, it, it shows you that there are huge rewards to being in disagreement with markets at times with businesses that produce good economics. And I think you, you just get to certain junctures where people forget about those ideals, and they are ideals because we've seen them proven time and time again. It's just not very fun, and it might not be very popular for certain seasons. Excellent. I, I, um, that's a really great rundown. You know, I mean, especially, uh, you know, most recently in the context of the, um, the rebound in, in, in tech stocks, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's more of a knee-jerk reaction to you know the idea that the Fed would would uh, pause, maybe even cut earlier in the year that we saw, uh, although it doesn't look like that now. But but as interest rates seem to be uh, more you know stabilizing, or at least the outlook for for policy seems to be stabilizing, um, I think I, I just can't help feeling that that you know tech investors uh, you know might have uh, sort of jumped the gun. On, on on that, and that's what we're seeing. Maybe there's some short covering in there, um, you know, some re-leveraging of some kind going on, uh, uh, you know, trend following might, might yeah. even play a role in that, um, in terms of driving that forward. But but it really defies fundamentals, you know, given given that the, the high duration nature. Now, now, if we're talking about, you know, the top, top 10 or top 20 components of the S&P 500, mm-hmm. uh, that's what's driven all of the return this year, uh, you know, with NASDAQ Correct. up roughly 20%. What, would you characterize that possibly as a bear market rally in, in that so, segment uh, of the market? Yeah, so it's a good question. And I'll give you two contexts. I think I'll give you a longer run context to this and then just a short term. So just, I, I, we just got done talking about the break of the tech bubble and all the stupidity that went on. Yeah. If you look at the three years, there were massive bear market rallies during that three years, okay? And I'm right. not talking about 10%, 20%. We're talking 30 plus percent bear market rallies. Um, to your point, I think it fits that picture really well. In other words, the markets are always going to do whatever it takes to frustrate the most investors possible. Okay, um, Because again, if it's going to be profitable to be in markets, it's got to be scarcer. Okay, um, Therefore... You know, you crush these things. People think they're buying some kind of value bargain. They rally 30%. You think you're a genius. And then you wake up again, you know, a year later and you're, you're sitting, you know, 15% below uh, where you bought. And that's kind of the nature of bear market rallies. Also, to kind of put it in a, a, a baby boomer context, and, and since there's not many millennials that are 39 that have been around this business for very long, um, you know, dead cats do bounce. 
that's just the reality of the market. <laughs> right. And that's the old saying, and, and, and we're, we're, we're kind of seeing it now. So that'd be what I would say just from kind of a pure market movement perspective, but, but let's go longer term. Um, and I'll, I'll, uh, Bill's harped on this a lot, so I'll give him a lot of credit for this on our team. Um, if you go look at, at the top 10 market caps by decade, going back to the 1980s, that is a kiss of death for investors, okay? Right. Because it doesn't mean that one of those 10 big market caps globally can't be one of the 10 uh, biggest market caps 10 years later, but the guarantee out of the data is that the 10 biggest market caps will underperform the S&P 500, and it, it is not uncommon for the S&P 500 to underperform greatly during some of those periods as well. Right. Okay? So I point that out because um, it, it's like you're, you're, this is a game of odds and probabilities and, and pathways for those probabilities. And the odds are that those stocks will underperform the S&P 500. And I would add further, we don't think the S&P 500 is going to do very well, much like it did you know, during the 2000s. Um, the one thing the 2000s had going for it uh, in comparison was interest rates were going to decline for a decade. Okay, and right. we don't have that luxury today, so um, so we think a lot about that. You know, uh, in some respects, the, the the large American big cap tech companies look like Japanese stocks did in the late 1980s. Um, you know, really the only other other groups on that list would be, um, you know, at one point was like the Chinese tech stocks, but those have kind of all fallen back. So th those weren't um, th those weren't uh, they 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 didn't get to skip history either, and I don't think these will either. Um, to use to use IBM as an example, IBM was a big company. It right. always was a big company, and yet it stayed the, one of the ten largest market caps as you look through that data from eighty to ninety. And yet you didn't want to own it, right? It stayed big. Right. You didn't want to own it. it. Didn't it? Didn't make the economic didn't return do you wanted. Didn't yeah. do anything. So again, the idea that they're big, I think that's really the that that will be the um, anchor to the S and P five hundred. The only way the S and P five hundred does as poorly as we think it will do is the big composition of those companies will drag it down. And, um, and the great part is, you know, uh, the secret to life is weak competition. So what are we saying? We're saying that the S&P 500 is gonna do well, which makes our job easier, not tougher. Right, Versus right. the last decade, I mean, that was really tough. So, I, and, and again, we're not taking the risks, as you, as you know, we're not taking the risks that the S&P 500 is taking. We're doing it in other economic ways, which we can get into, but it, it's just, it, this is such a great world to be investing in, you know, picking stocks. And, you know, when I hear people negative about, oh, you know, value might be over because no one does it anymore. No, no, that's just wrong. That's false. What you do is scarce. That means it's profitable. That means it's valuable to the market. And that means other people don't do it. And that's what you dream of in your business. I think there's a there's a, there's an entire I, I don't know if it, maybe the gen, you know calling it a generation but there's an entire let, let's say a, a cohort of mm -hmm. uh, of investors and advisors alike in the business and uh, in the market that have um, a very um, underinformed uh, view on active investing anymore. Mm -hmm. Agree. And and uh, I mean, the last 10 years, you know, macro didn't matter. A lot of fundamentals certainly didn't didn't seem to matter. Uh, I'm sure that's not true. But but that's that that was sort of the um, sentiment that was going around uh, yeah. that was pervasive. And um, so, you know, if you go back, if you go 10, 12, you know, 14 years back to the, you know, 2008 uh, point, 
um, a lot of investors have just simply bought into the indexing mantra and and um, you know I I remember we did a webinar with Craig Lazara at, at S and P in mm-hmm. uh, in 2018 and and you know I've I've mentioned this before but the most disheartening slide of all of that was was the uh, slide on you know where he where he shows that dispersion of returns within the index were at an yeah. all time historical low yeah which which i think continued as well beyond beyond the time of the webinar but but correct you know basically uh you know craig was there to say that you know active investing is dead spiva is correct and and you know just just go with the average yeah right <laughs> well, well, in the spiva studies here's what they also so they look at the the managers across the board so they're treating them all as like an equal weight in effect, because they're saying, here's what the, the funds or managers did, but they're dollar weighted right. in the marketplace. So no one goes out and runs a study and says, here's what the dollar weighted return of the investors were, which I'd love to see that data because I know that money flows to where it's treated best, okay? So, but if you wanna make people look stupid, you do average weight because the average is gonna be worse than that dollar weight, in my opinion, on the margin, okay? So I think that's an important point to make when you look at those studies. Make sure you're paying attention to how the data's cut. Um, That's one thing I'd always say. But again, you know, back to my point earlier, what you do has to be scarce. So tech bubble breaks, everyone becomes a value investor by 05. You know, they all can preach Buffett and Warren and so on and so forth, okay? Now wake up today, is that true? Or is it more likely to find people that say, I would never own certain kind of technology companies diving in with both of their fists saying, oh, I, I figured out how they fit my criteria now, okay? Um, and and you, one thing you'll never hear us talk about is never. We'll never say, oh, we'll never own that industry. We'll never own that right. sector. Because back to my point earlier, your discipline doesn't change, but what the markets give you always do. And over, you know, I remember we'd be sitting around with groups and, you know, we didn't own an energy stock from, 2010 to like late 2019 and people I, we'd go to see investors that we work with in place like houston and it's like when are you guys ever going to own oil and gas and the answer is well you know we we can't predict this you know the market might give us an opportunity that we just never predict um and and sure enough it happened in other words it was almost kind of like once you say it you know it's going to make you laugh um right. so i point that out because i think the flexibility of investing um is super important and if anything, I think that's one of the real dangers right now. Uh, you know, we, 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 we sit across from investors or, or hear people say, well, I'm not going to own this place because it's not asset light. I'm not going to own this place because it's cyclical. And they put all these like never, you know, ideas out there and then they're picking between four or five sectors. And it is the narrowness of the S&P 500. I think that's also kind of reinforcing that. Um, now, what are they really doing? They're performance chasing. They're looking in the rearview mirror, like has always gone on and saying, here's the businesses I want to own because they've gone up the most. Okay, now that tells you nothing of the future. That's the one thing we all have in common. We can't predict the future. Um, And the question is, I mean, between us all, when a majority of the financial advisors or when a majority of the stock pickers all uh, all agree on certain things and they make up the market, you just know that you probably can't make money agreeing with them. And that's one of the dangers of today. So I totally agree with you. I think most active managers in, call it the value space, or in stock picking have given up on much of what they would have believed at the age of 25, 30, 35, um, because the last 10 years has made them, the pressure to conform has been too great in effect. Right. But 
you have stuck to your guns and and uh you know we we've, we've been we've been sharing Smeed capital management posts since I believe around 2010 or 11 mm-hmm. and um you know and 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 that's uh a shout out to Tucker oh yeah by the way yeah because t- Tucker actually yep. got in touch with us and and asked you know uh was trying to ascertain what our interest was and I I I was an advisor in the uh 90s and you know I was spent I spent about 15 years as a retail advisor and I, I sort of grew up on on the um you know on on the Warren Buffett philosophy yeah. of investing you know buy and hold finding quality and and you know in the in the full sense of the definition and and sticking to the you know sticking to to it for the long term um and I I saw you I saw Smead Capital Management as a beacon or a lighthouse of you know that philosophy of active management and concentration uh back then and you know so that that was where you know as as the uh, editor of the uh, of advisor analyst you know we took an interest a great interest in in what you were uh what you and uh bill have been writing about for the last decade and um so i i, I it's amazing to me that we haven't done this sooner Mm-hmm. I gotta say, I, I have really. I'll let really Tucker enjoy- know that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I gotta say, uh, but no, but shame on us too, because I, I, uh, you know, that, I think I would have loved to have done this much sooner. You know, get together with you and, and record a conversation, do a podcast with you. I, I've really enjoyed reading your blogs over the years. Um, they've always been uh, rich in insight and, and uh, something that's in short supply or seemed to be in short supply over that that entire duration um and and by the way yours are some of our most read content on advisor analyst so i don't know if you're surprised to hear that but but there is a cohort of advisors and investors who are still very much interested in what you have to say and um in terms of uh you know fundamental investing and your latest one was very interesting uh intriguing i thought mm-hmm. um so l- let's talk about that tech is bullish on oil was the title of your blog in it yeah you mentioned two mark mills books the bottomless well which he published in 2005 and mm-hmm. the cloud revolution published in 2021 uh, as a pretext to your thoughts on the interplay of energy and technology what is the foundation of of this component of the interplay of your larger thesis on energy and, yeah. uh, and tech? It's a great question. Um, and by the way, just to, to give him a lot of credit, Mark Mills has been a great thinker, a great writer. I, I would say, um, you know, the framework he's provided us as a firm for thinking about, um, you know, the just the, the science of what we're dealing with in, in many cases. Uh, I just give him a lot of credit and I, I thank him a lot for writing those books and, you know, coming on our podcast. So here's what I would say. Uh, by, by the way, by the way, I, I, I want to thank you because I, I think, I think your 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 podcast is inspiring um, on the front of how important it is to read. Oh, I, I and, totally and, agree. You know, a book with legs. And we'll get to that. I, I do want to talk about uh, your most recent one, but but let, let's let's start. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. Go ahead with. Um, I like your excitement, though. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so, so with Mills, I think, you know, you know, 
I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll teach your listeners about something that I think we were wrong or I'll, maybe I'll just take the blame for I was wrong in, okay? So if you asked me a few years ago, let's say five years ago, um, I would have been in like the Luddite camp, okay? I would have been in the Luddite camp saying, technology can't go that far, there's gotta be a snapback, you know, so on and so forth, okay? Kind of like there's gotta be meaner version, like classic, you know, I'll call it value Luddite idea, okay? And the reality is it, it wasn't wrong from an investment implication perspective. It was wrong from an economic framework perspective, okay? Let me explain. Sure. I'll use the last 10 years if you look at uh, you know, the energy information coming out of the United States tied to electricity, okay? So um, as Mills points out, the LED light bulb is one of the greatest technology creations in, in the modern era. It is the most efficient for creating light in a way that we've never seen. That's why you see it in cars, in your home, et cetera. Okay, now the fallacy is that the more efficient we become in our energy use, we will use less. And the answer is, there's no proof of that. Right. Okay, and this is what you mentioned, this is the Jevons paradox. Um, and I'll explain it from a US context, I'll explain the Jevons paradox as well. So when you look at that data, electricity consumption um, has flatlined in the United States looking back a decade. and. Uh, people would say, well, see, you know, we're more efficient. Well, but again, we, we didn't use less energy because we were more efficient. So if you go into my home or we go into your home, what you'll find is that you have way more lights than you did in the past because they're more efficient, which means you can run the same utility bill and have a better lit home. That's called economic progress. And, and that's a beautiful thing in our opinion, okay? Now, where the Jevons paradox comes from is when they discovered, um, when they discovered coal in the UK and they were gonna go out um, and they realized, okay, uh-oh, if this makes it more efficient, the commodity is gonna disappear because the efficiency of using the commodity will drive a scarcity. And that was, that was a fear, and, and, and Jevons you know, pointed out that, that it's a paradox, and, but he didn't think it was gonna be true. What ended up happening was, yes, they got more efficient in their coal use, and the usage of coal expanded, obviously, the ability to mine it and find it and those kind of things. So again, the, if someone says, what does the Jer Jevons paradox teach? That the negative view of the future was of little value to people building the framework of economies and investors in those economies, okay? So let's use the Jevons paradox for today, okay? The idea is that we're gonna become so much more efficient in technology and therefore, we're gonna use way less energy. And this idea of call it in oil and gas land, the conversation we've been hearing lately is peak production, we're past peak production, okay? Mm -hmm. um, the reality is great technology, uh, I'll use the laser, and this is again, I'm completely plagiarizing Mill's work. The laser is one of the most fundamentally incredible technologies of the modern era. But it's just the most intensive use of energy we've ever seen. So it doesn't, you know, again, creating great technologies yeah. like that didn't create less energy usage. It created far more. Um, to use, I'll quote from his Cloud Revolution book, when, when, when Amazon is creating these server farms, um, it takes so much energy to move the data to these servers that what they'll do is, that he pointed out, they use their snowmobile, which is they put the, <laughs> they load the data onto the servers locally, they yeah. then put the servers on a truck, drive it across the country, and then place them in the server farm. Okay, so, so again, uh, energy usage only gets greater with greater technologies. Um, you know, also, the, you, know, you think about this, you, people always forget that to move energy, you must use energy. 
So all these things playing on each other, I just don't think people have the framework to understand that because you know they're effectively making the case we're going to go back to carbohydrates. We're going to you know uh, we're going to use things like wood and other things. We're going to be more sustainable. And the problem is what they're actually saying is we want to go backwards in economic growth. We want to go to a lower level of economic growth. And between you right. and me, I don't want to. I want you know God said be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion. And I don't see that meeting that goal. Um, you know, that doesn't mean we don't want to be a good steward of what we've been blessed with as humans on this earth. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that that's never happened through a country having worse economics. And I'll add one more thing. This is something that was in his 05 book that I, I think people miss. The United States between the time that the, the uh, pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock to about 1920 had depleted 30% of the American forest. Um, the fauna, the flora, right? It's like it's, right. you know, it, we're affected by that. From 1920 to uh, really uh, today, but most of that happened post-1985, we repleted the forests of America. We have a larger forest today than we've ever had. So again, back to this idea of like economic growth and more energy consumption. Someone says, Cole, what's your takeaway from that? I would say a benevolent capitalistic society that creates wealth through the individuals that drive that can do incredible things. And so, again, I'm more worried about that the economics aren't going to be good enough for the individuals and households. That's the risk. Because when you're wealthy, we all know you can solve a lot of personal problems. And that's true in the economy as well. And that's where we should want to go from a framework perspective. Yeah. And and um, so, I mean, in terms of, of the amount of electricity usage uh, versus growth of technology infrastructure... Um, there's a there's there's a potential shortfall there, right? I mean, if you consider you know all the different kinds of sources of electricity now, uh, you know whether it's nuclear or or uh, oil, oil and gas, coal, yeah. coal fired, wind, solar, um, really only one of of you know or or two, I should say, of those two electricity sources is a stable load, and that's yeah. uh, number one is nuclear. Um, yep. That's a rather big deal here in in in, in Ontario, and uh, in Canada, and um, the other is is uh, hydro hydroelectric, right? Yeah. But, but once you get into uh, the other areas where you get into fossil uh, fossil fuels, um, that seems to be the area that's under attack, uh, and there are entire segments of our uh, geography that are that are powered by those two. Yeah. And, and then uh, you get into coal, which is the legacy. Um, that's, that, that, that's really an interesting segue. I, th I think in, there was a point that you made about the iPod. Yeah, so in 1980, if you had to create the iPhone back then, it would have taken a Manhattan-sized office tower of electricity, okay? So <laughs> just think that fits in your pocket today. It's way yeah. more efficient. So again, to use the Jevons paradox, we just have billions of them instead. <laughs> okay, yeah. so again, it's not a backwards, it's all for the forward, it's all for the progress, it's all for the economics. And to your point, the risk in this world is not having um, too much energy. And I think that's the biggest myth. Oh, we have too much energy, and that this idea we're past peak production. Yeah. No, the risk is that we have too little. That's that's the reality of the situation. Go to go to third world countries. You're not going to find a situation where they're like, "Gosh, we have so much power. It's crazy here." No, you go there and they're like, "Just sustainable, needed economic 
power supply you know showing up every day and not having any issues i mean you can go to parts of the caribbean and that's still a question um that's what goes on in in uh, most of the world um you, you have to remember that you know i'll use canada the united states or western europe for example um we're rich yeah we're rich so when you're rich you can make decisions that other people cannot and so the idea that we need to build the framework around what every rich person in the western world wants or needs that's foolishness i'll go one step further in the case of Europe, they're a declining population. So, I mean, what parts of the West are doing is say, well, let's be more like Europe, who's dying slowly but surely, and therefore, as rich people dying, they're gonna make different decisions in a growing country that's rich as well. And so I, I think there's even shades of that that needs to be um, understood because, I mean, if you're gonna have a dying population, you need less electricity. But you're not a right. very good model for Asia and Africa and other parts of the growing world, and, and that's, that's, that's something that's different. So I, I, I completely agree. Um, but again, this is all gonna be propelled by technology, by innovation, by economic growth, and by people's willingness to go out and create businesses and, and move their livelihoods and their, their, their employees forward. I caught the, um, th thank you very much, Cole, for explaining that. I caught the news item, I believe it was last week, that Germany had just closed its last nuclear reactor. Mm -hmm. Yep, saw that too. Yeah, and it reminded me of, um, there's a great movie uh, that was produced by uh, Ed Bertinsky called uh, Anthropocene. I don't know if you've seen it. I've brought it up before. I have before. not, no. There's, a, there's an entire segment in that movie about the coal mining, lignite, lignite uh, mining in Germany, where, you know, they're trying to make up for their electricity their power generation shortfall as a result mm -hmm. of mothballing their nuclear reactors yeah but when you see these um when you see these lignite harvesters that are terraforming entire parts of german of the german countryside it's mind-blowing these machines are the sizes uh, they're the size of buildings um and they have these gi gigantic scoops uh, on on a like a Ferris wheel, um, you know, basically scooping up you know tons and tons of the land so, of 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 land. Yeah. Um, you know, at, in 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 these parts of Germany. But but what was even more uh, fascinating was that this is this is this is at such a um, at all cost activity that they are destroying uh, towns. In the process, like entire towns and villages have had to relocate because the the mines have bought the right to harvest all that land underneath. Correct. Wait, right? yeah, what, what you're getting to though is, and I'll quote um, uh, Milton Friedman. He said, "If you put the government in charge of the Sahara Desert, you'd run out of sand within five years." Okay. And what are they doing? They're running out of sand. Yeah. Their, their sand is, yeah. you know, obviously coal. Um, so now. now again to go back to your question on kind of like the nuclear so in the long run in the long run the cheapest most accessible commodity will always drive the energy dominance in the world okay so you know if someone says what's the most economic forms of energy out there i would say well it's nuclear and it's oil and gas those are the two right. most economic uh, from a price perspective now we obviously know that you know um, the historical model of building a big nuclear reactor and whatnot, um, that is probably, you know, that has seen its peak and it's already waning. Um, uh, 
uh, versus, you know, oil and gas hasn't seen its peak, I would argue. Now, you also get into your point, you get some geopolitical risks. Um, nuclear reactors in Ukraine seem a little iffy, just in the minds of most humans. Sure. Po- post Fukushima. And there's, all, there's also the irony of, of Germany having to buy its shortfall in electricity from France, which Correct. is all nuclear, you know, which, which is predominantly which nuclear. nuclear. Yeah. I agree. So, so you know, but, but, like but, it, those are the unintended consequences of, of ESG, right? Or some of them, anyways. Well, also just uh, just of time. Yeah. I mean, when Fukushima took place, that put a big back burner to nuclear projects because it's like, hey, look at the look at right. the kind of fallout from Fukushima as an example um, from an act of God, right? A, a statistically uh, tough event to figure out in advance. And I'm not saying everything went perfect there, but my point is this: um, you know, why did coal become so dominantly used during the Industrial Revolution? Because it was the cheapest, most readily available, uh, you know, resource out there. So that will never, that will never stop. Um, you know, what oil and gas has going for it that nuclear doesn't is you could blow up a gas tank and you just get exhausted fumes and flames and you blow up nuclear and it's a little bit different reaction. Okay. And it has a little bit different fallout going forward. So I think that's the one uh, advantage that oil and gas has relative to nuclear is the longer term problems from an explosion. I mean, it's as simple as that. Right. Um, now, it doesn't mean that nuclear isn't highly valuable in this framework. But again, so far, oil and gas is more palatable to the human in just their mind. Now, again, I, I'm, I'm not saying that because I'm the person saying, hey, we're not going to do more renewable. Okay, that's the catch. Again, my thesis is we don't have enough energy at large. Okay, right. And if someone says, "Hey, you know, will renewable grow?" Yes, I think renewable will grow because all energy is needed. But you got to remember that comparing like our discussion on nuclear versus oil and gas um, against uh, talking about renewables, well, one is heavily subsidized and one is not subsidized really at all. Okay. Right. Um, or one is regulated and taxed, and one is not regulated and taxed at all. Um, and I think that's really a completely different discussion. So, I mean, I'll give you a number. There's been about $3 trillion spent globally to, to, in, into renewables. And I would just challenge anyone to show me wow. what the economic return is as of this point. In other words, what has been the accumulated or cumulative um, economic return from that? And um, so far, I don't think we're in the double digits, um, which is really sad to say. Now, again, that will get better. Those technologies will get more efficient. Right. But you have to remember that I'll use solar as an example. Solar is the least concentrated form of energy in the world because, yes, you get sunlight. Yes, it's cheap, but it's also not very concentrated. Um, a gallon of gasoline is, you know, like nuclear, it's so concentrated, it's so mobile. Um, I look at the gallon of gas like the human mind. Um, you could, I could feed you bananas for two weeks, and your brain can do things that a computer could never do on a mobile detached basis like that. And that's really how I look at a gallon of gas. Um, you know, I, 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 I like to flex my petro masculinity ever, ever occasionally, <laughs> and I own a 2005 Ford Excursion, which has a 45-gallon uh, diesel tank. Right. And it's kind of interesting to think about I can get in a car in Phoenix and almost make it to Reno, Nevada, and to get to, say, the shores of Lake Tahoe in one tank of gas. Um, the freedom and the flexibility that provides humanity um, to do something like that is incredible. And we actually cannot touch something like that yet 
in terms of freedom, flexibility. I don't have to stop, you know, unless I got kids with me. Right, um, right. They reduce your freedom, flexibility. They're like owning an EV, right. um, you know, uh, but they're a bigger blessing, I think. So again, there's components that people aren't accounting for. I'll give you one other thing. This is back to the geopolitical idea. Uh, let's say someone attacks the grid of Canada or the United States of America. And we all have EVs. Congratulations, you've shut down the American economy, the Canadian economy. Versus um, if we have cars that run combustion and you shut down the grid, guess what? You'd not take an extra risk. I actually think the world we're going to, just so you know, to tease forward, is a hybrid world. You're gonna have a small battery with a a torque motor to get you to speed. You're gonna have a smaller combustion engine than the past with a turbocharger on it that will then run at speed. And that means even if your battery goes low, it can be recharged by the combustion engine. That is a more free world. That's a more flexible world. That's a world that can speed out of danger quicker with the, the electric right. motor. Uh, huge benefit. So again, this is not a Luddite view. We're gonna do great things. I'm gonna get in a car in Phoenix, Arizona sometime in the next 20 years, and I'm gonna sit in a car having cocktails with a friend, playing poker on the way to Vegas <laughs> while not looking at the road. And by the way, that could right. be a combustion engine doing that, that could be EV. Right. So again, I think we're gonna do far more. I think our cars are gonna become far more important. Um, we're gonna do way more because of these blessings. So the conclusion is that there will be continued shortages, right? Correct. I mean, Correct. And by the way, I'll, I'll, Eric Nuttall uh, in you know from Nine Point Energy th- does a great job of talking about the inventory shortfalls, and he's got he talks a lot about this too. So I'll give him a lot of credit um, that you know th- there we need far more energy. And what what these governments are doing is they're arguing for investors to just invest far less, and that's a danger. Cole, are you able to tell us the story behind some of your key long-term holdings? Yeah, uh, well, so so in, in, in this space, since we're discussing it, um, I'll, I'll throw out a couple things that happened back to the psychology we talked about earlier. In late 19, there were three things that uh, really stuck out to us, okay? Um, first off, Peter Lynch was interviewed in November uh, of 19's Barron's Magazine. Yeah. And here's the greatest growth stock investor of all time. And what was he talking about? He, he talked about seeing three baggers and four baggers out in E&Ps, which was like, wow. I mean, creme de la creme girl stock picker is talking about you know, exploration and production. Right. Sam Zell, billionaire Sam Zell, um, you know, was out, uh, who they call uh, the grave dancer. He was out buying existing production in private markets that was in trouble, okay? And then at the same time, you had Warren Buffett going out to do his preferred um, plus warrants deal with Occidental Petroleum, okay? And I just think environmentally, you rarely get that many smart people agreeing at the same time against the market or really away from the market's uh, opinion at the time. Now, that didn't mean you don't have to you know, look like an idiot. You have to look like an idiot often in great investing. And so you could get involved in that late 19 and you wake up in the spring of 20 and you're looking up at God like the wildcatter often is and saying, what did I get myself into, okay? And the reality is you got yourself into a blessing. You just don't know it at the time, okay? <laughs> and um, so what that did is, again, we, we came into this thinking, these are brilliant investors, these are great minds, we have to pay attention to great capital allocators. And the reality was that not only that, but then also, and I'll give Barry Bannister, Stiefel Nicholas uh, credit for this, he pointed out that commodities had never done so poorly relative to stocks looking back in over 200 years. Um, and he had a great chart for showing that. So it's like, you kind of add the probabilities up and you're, you're like, gosh, I just lost a ton of money um, but I know the odds are so much in my favor because no one wants to own this space. And so what we had originally bought Occidental Petroleum in late 19, 
got our head handed to us. Um, we actually did a pretty large tax sale on our entire position uh, you know, the Monday after Saudi Sunday. Um, right. We woke up buying uh, more Chevron in response to that because we'd already owned some Chevron. We got involved with Occidental Petroleum in, uh, I think it was June of that year. Uh, we came back and started getting involved in ConocoPhillips later that year. Um, uh, and then, you know, you fast forward, uh, you know, we made wonderful money on our Continental and then we have Harold Hamm buy us out late last year. And where we've pivoted that capital to is, to your point about this supply tightness and like the fact that we need more energy, the, the longer duration the assets are right now in oil and gas, the more valuable they are. And so in a Canadian context, I think this makes the tar sands businesses very attractive because they're just longer duration assets. But also, you know, we're about to do our webcast on uh, APA Corp, which was formerly known as Apache, where, you know, they sit in, they sit in the United States, they sit in some of their production in the North Sea, uh, more of their production in Egypt, about 50-50 US, non-US, but they're out doing offshore stuff in Suriname. Now, why why would be interested in a business that is doing offshore, which typically typically has a higher cost? Well, because you also know it's a longer asset, and that's really what the market is missing: is long dated asset creation, right. long dated asset production. Um, if you look at the majors, they're getting more interested in the Permian, which is seven year projects. It's it's a, a very short asset. And we don't think everyone will be able to go and reinvest for the next cycle, which is also why we think there's going to be a lot of consolidation. So. Someone asked us the other day, you know, it looks like Exxon's, you know, kind of reinvesting and what they think will be good for them. And, you know, if Shell's talking about going back to America, you know, or coming to America rather than sitting in London, you know, what does that mean to the majors? Well, the majors are waking up to the fact that they were wrong. They were just wrong in how they approached the world, which I would say is not uncommon, just so we're on the same page. Right. Typically, the majors come in at the top and pay the dumbest price. That's the history of the oil and gas business. So like XTO with Shell, the dumbest price paid in the open market. Um, and so we were really glad, like in our international fund, that White Cap's out buying the former XTO Canada because, right. again, we paid a much better price for those assets. But I pointed out because it shows you where we're at in the cycle we will consolidate this industry because again, not everyone will be able to reinvest. So the question is, if you want more production, can you actually get more production as a company by paying in the open market of say, the Toronto Stock Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange to buy right. these assets and get more production? Or are you better off going into the field and doing it yourself? That's the capital allocation right now, okay? In anything outside of that production, you, you don't wanna grow. Um, I mean, I would advocate that people are buying back their stocks because these stocks look cheap. So as we look at like what Occidental Petroleum's done, they made a major acquisition, they borrowed a lot of money, they got really great interest rates on that. Um, you fast forward what's happened, people went from hating their balance sheet to loving their balance sheet. The, what they've been able to do in the economics or business, they're driving massive free cash flow, buying back stock like fiends. It's like a game of Pac-Man, it's so much fun. And and that is exactly the policy prescription I would go out and tell anyone. We had Vicki Holub, their CEO, out at our Investor Oasis uh, in February, which uh, we'll have to invite you out to, but yep. she, said, she said, again, the backdrop is, you have a government telling you you're not gonna be around in 10 years. And then they call you the following day and say, invest two or three billion dollars. And, and she said, you're just not gonna do it. And so we agree. Yeah. So, so I, I think the other thing too, and this is about like, you know, the idea of learning and reading books. If I, you know, we were having this discussion seven years ago, um, and you said, Cole, what do you know about the oil and gas business? I'd say, not much. I mean, yeah. I generally can tell you some things, but I, I don't know a whole lot about the assets, the basins, et cetera. 
okay? But then yeah. investment opportunity strikes, and what do you become? You become this learning machine where you're just trying to take in everything you can, learn anything you can, ask yourself tons of questions, and I think that is why investing is the last liberal art, right? That is a liberal education process. Yeah. You're gonna learn little bits and pieces from everything you experience, and the question is who's willing to learn? Back to our never conversation earlier, there's a lot of investors that say, I don't wanna learn about that, and that's fine. But that's one of our advantages as investors yeah. and, and the investors that are out there. If you're willing to learn, you can create way greater opportunities to make money. I love that, by the way, that investing is the last great liberal art. I think that's a, that's a terrific way of, of describing the business. Uh, you know, it, it gets often, um, you, you know, I feel as though, you know, I, I, I personally, I find, you know, the whole, um, idea of passive investing very very um sleepy very mm -hmm. uninteresting i agree um but then you know how 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 exciting could it possibly be to uh, other than you know some of the net results from it how how exciting can it possibly be from an from a, a you know an allocator's point of view to just say i'm just going to do average we're just going to buy the average um well, i um, well, well, william sharp William Sharp talked about this in 02, and his quote that I love is, he said, um, you know, as long as the active managers are there keeping prices close to value, both on the long and the short side, um, there's a free, free, you know, there's a free lunch, right? Yeah. Um, but the question to your point is, are there enough? Are there enough <laughs> active managers keeping prices close to the value? I would argue there's not. And therefore, it's not a free lunch. I call it be like a negative alpha lunch where you're like, hey, um, I thought I got something for free. I was hoodwinked in effect and but he, he said it's, it's easier to do that because you can go out and do arts and sports and you know entertainment and you can enjoy your life easier and i agree i mean this is a this is a a full-time job to go out and want to learn these things but then again it's also your passion it's what you want to do with all your time in effect um crowding some other things out uh but but the the, the question is who wants to do that I mean, who really wants to go do that? And can everyone be good at it? And I, I just don't think everyone can be good at it. And it's tough as it is, even if you do want to spend a lot of time on it. No, I, I think I think with uh, as with anything, you know, where where people do get good at something, and you know, in this case, we're talking about investing. Um, it does require a, a huge investment of time, but it but it's not just the time; it's the interest. You have to be interested. Yeah, gotta um, be passionate. You know, we like I, I, you know, from from our perspective as a publisher, you know, we we tend to see um, significant spikes in readership mm -hmm. when things go sideways, right? When markets are in drawdown, when you yeah. know, advisors and investors alike are looking for answers, right? And and so our traffic goes up, you know, dramatically in those periods. It's it's. It's contrary to what we're talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, the idea is to get in front of it, not behind it, not not to react to it. Um, but um, in terms of, of of your thesis on on energy, I know you know in Canada, which is a very you know energy rich economy, you know um, more and more Canadians, more and more Canadian advisors and investors are are sort of getting on board this idea that after you know ten you know ten years plus of underinvestment. Mm -hmm. Um, has led to dramatic, you know, shortages in in new new production, right? Yeah. And that goes to your point that you have a choice. You can either you can either um, you know spend uh, on on uh, developing 
new properties, new new sources, uh, or you can acquire, right? Yeah. And uh, to your point again, when you acquire, you're gonna, you know, usually that's gonna be at, at top dollar, um, but at least you fulfill some of your supply uh, right away, as well, opposed it, to as well, opposed it, to waiting five or ten years for a project to come online. Yeah. Um, you know, we 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 talked about on another podcast. We talked about um, tourmaline tying up with chenier. Yeah. And uh, in the LNG business, and but you know, this was coming. The news stories, the the news feed was coming about this tie up in the in the heat of the pandemic and the mm -hmm. Ukraine, the uh, Russia Ukraine conflict, um, especially you know, blew it up. Um, that Europe was going to be in shortage. But if you read, you know, if you read it more carefully, you know, what you saw was that these supply tie-ups between the two companies were coming online in 25, 26, 27. Long time out. But not we, 23 or not 22, yeah. not right away. There's no there's no fulfillment happening <laughs> now. It's happening 4 years from now, right? And and so when you when you see what the time constraints are, for for this type of work, the fact that we've had ten years of underinvestment, the amount of catch up that's involved uh, is huge. Yeah. I mean, the amount of money that's going to have to be spent on R and D on on sorry not R and D on on exploration and development. Yeah, um, is uh, is you know I, I don't know it's in, incalculable maybe right now because we're so far behind after ten years of uh, you know reacting to shale, right. 10 years of ESG, 10 yeah. years of, of, you know, that kind of policy making and the decisions that executives at, at the big oil companies made, you know, in, in favor of, of cutting back on E&P and expanding, uh, you know, renewables. Um, now, you know, they've been caught flat footed. And, 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 you know, I think the sort of flashpoint of all that is, is the, the war in the Ukraine and, and the threat to Europe. The you know, energy vulnerability of Europe is the ultimate flashpoint of all of that policy making of the last ten to twelve years. I agree. Well, yeah. you, you remember on the deal side. So one one thing that's important to highlight. So um, the bigger the market cap is right now, generally speaking, the higher the multiple it gets. So there's an arbitrage. I'll call it a corporate arbitrage that can happen. Where you know, just think: Do I poke a hole in the ground on my higher EBITDA multiple or free cash flow multiple or book multiple stock, or do I go buy someone where I know exactly what they're already producing, and I pay a lower multiple, and I can either do an all stock or part cash, part stock, or all cash deal, and I know it's a creative, and I know it's immediately going to translate into more production in my corporate entity. That is very easy calculus. To, to your point about consolidation, I mean, what are there like forty-five Canadian ENPs sitting out there, you know, with less than you know three billion dollars of market cap? I mean, it's crazy how many Canadian ENPs are. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, so I think we're going to see a lot of consolidation, and a lot of it's just people saying, you know what, we can get rewarded in the stock market for being inside of a bigger company, having these assets inside of a bigger company. That arbitrage. Right is gonna go on, but then when it comes to, uh, uh, we're, we're putting together our webcast for uh, uh, Apache, APA, and uh, it's funny, I was just going through, so back in 2019, they struck a deal with Chenier. Now here's what's interesting, Chenier's lenders for the facility to liquefy natural gas and export it, said, hey, you have to get a long-term commitment supply. So they struck that in 19, okay? So right. 
what we know right now is that's going to start up here in Q3 of 2023, to your point about the time it takes. But right. here's the catch. Because the lender needed a fixed long-term contract, there's a guaranteed spread to APA Corp. In other words, it doesn't matter what nat gas prices are. They're going to collect a spread <laughs> regardless of right. what the spot price is. Okay, So they're going to be treated like a croupier. So what I also think we're seeing is you know, there's niche parts of the oil and gas business that are creating economics that you might not necessarily see screaming at you in stock prices. But, you know, to your point about, you know, moving, moving this stuff around the world, you know, if, if Europe needs more energy right away, yeah, you can liquefy natural gas that costs a lot of money to do. Um, go look at the oil tanker market right now. I mean, we own, we've, we've been buying Frontline International Fund and we've owned that for a little over a year. Um, we were liquidating the oil tanker market because steel prices were high enough that it incented you to just pretty much scrap your boats at the 20 year mark. Um, and the cash rates you were getting on a daily basis to run those were too low. So what was happening is people would you know, have, have five boats hit the 20 year mark and they would only reinvest in two. So I think what, you know, in this post you know, pandemic, post Ukraine world, I really look at this as a fractured dollar system where there's all these niche places to make money that didn't necessarily show up like they did, you know, pre these events taking place where you can make a lot of money. But again, you'd have to learn a lot about the oil tanker business overnight, or you'd have right. to learn a lot about the oil and gas business. And again, I mean, do do 22 year old Americans and Canadians, you know, go to a four year <laughs> education, say, you know what I really hope to do in life? I really hope to be a genius in those industries. And the answer is no. You know, they yeah. think that the only way to become a billionaire is to go out into a technology and create a business and have a VC firm back it and you go on to do these things. No, no, I mean, I look at John Fredrickson, the oil tanker business, billionaire. I look at Harold Hamm in the oil and gas business, billionaire. You, you mentioned tourmaline. We don't own, we don't right. own tourmaline, but I think Mike Rose is a friggin' genius. I, I admire the guy. I think the world of him, I have huge respect. I just tip my cap to him. Um, a lot of investing is also just studying, studying other great, capital allocators and billionaires. Um, you know, we did a we did a book on um, Jay Gould, who was the railroad baron. Um, right. I mean, Jay Gould is like, he was the Warren Buffett of his era. The only reason you don't know about him is because he died before he could in, endow New York University. Um, that's why we don't ever hear about Jay Gould today. So, right. um, so now one other thing, and this is where we could pivot if you want, but um, you can find examples where people have become billionaires in the last 10 years off of some of these commodity businesses that no one wants to touch. So what we see going on in the coal business, again, seven years ago, coal, you know, what is the coal yeah. business to me? Uh, I, I was know, just, just going to ask you, but yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. So I, 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 mean, yeah. I didn't know anything about the coal business. I couldn't even tell you what right. high grade coal was or low grade coal was or anything like that. Um, but again, that's what the great part about the markets. Hey, hey, there's good economics out there. Maybe you should want to learn more. Yes, I do. Right. I want to learn a lot. So, um, well, yeah, I mean, how else are you going to, how else are you going to, you know, properly exploit the inefficiencies in the market, the inefficiencies in the economy? How are you going to properly do that? It's not something that, that, that happens, uh, you know, maybe passively you end up owning these things, but that there's no, there's no real, uh, you know, economy in doing that. Uh, Right? Exactly. I mean, well, it, so, reminds, it reminds me of the old Smith Barney commercial, and I can't remember the actor. I, I want to just say one thing, like, Cole, because we've been talking about energy. Yeah. Um, you're not an energy fund. No. Like, you, you know, like, no. so that's, I just want to make that clear because, you know, energy is a focus of your investment uh, strategy today. today. Yeah. That could all change when, when things change, but for the time being, that's where your focus is. It's not, 
Like, so you, you, I just want to clarify that you're actually a go anywhere strategy. I don't want to make the mistake of leaving people thinking that, oh, Colts means an energy investor. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, to, your, to your point, I mean, yeah. I mean, we, we, uh, so we, I mean, we didn't own any energy for almost a decade. Right. Like I said earlier. So, um, I mean, if, if you think we're crazy on energy, I mean, we own mall REITs in the United States. I mean, malls are dead, right? I mean, it's a, just a dead business. You know, no millennial is going to move out of the city was the story 10 years ago. You know, look what's happening where we just don't have any supply. Um, you know, European banks can't make any money. I mean, so I, I love that kind of stuff. We just feed on that because, again, it's reasons to learn, ask the question. You know, I think the other thing it highlights, too, is when you're in these industries, tough times create the better moats. It creates better um, companies, you know, seeking out their competitive advantages. Consolidation usually feeds into that moat idea as well, because the tougher things get, people tend to consolidate in tough eras. Oh, I don't have enough production. I don't want to reinvest in that production. I better consolidate because we're not going to go through that next cycle. Um, to your point earlier, it, it always reminds me of the Smith Barney commercial with the British actor. He says, um, you know, uh, he says a good investment's not going to come up and bite you on the bottom. And then he comes back to the old Smith Barney saying to say, at Smith Barney, we make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it, right? And <laughs> I, I love that because, again, yeah. that is what the active investors should be seeking to do, right? No one is going to hand you something and say, here is a profitable way to go make money. Um, the learning process is where that comes from. And where that's continued to take us, again, in the learning process, it's like okay, you learn about one energy source. And what you learned on that becomes a cumulative advantage to you as an investor as you continue to think about those same things. Um, because you know, in, in many bull markets, you'll, you'll get rotational opportunities where it's like, great, we saw the, the wonderfully hot move in many you know, energy-related commodities, including coal, and now the pricing of coal's backed off. Well, what you're waking up on is where, you know, if you go, I, we ran a screen, I think we had in our piece, but we ran a screen to say, okay, it was like Europe, uh, South America, North America, it developed Asia, and maybe one other geography. We said, okay, we need, let's go look at a coal business where they do at least 80% of their, their business in coal, whether it be met or thermal, uh, with greater $3 billion of market cap, okay? And I think we came up with six, six globally. That's crazy to think about, but to take it one step further, um, only one of those six had debt, net debt. Now, here's why I say that. Normally in commodity businesses, they're cyclical. Because, again, you can't predict the future of the commodity. Right. That's the tough part. Now, in any commodity, I would say always look at supply. The tighter supply is, the easier it is to do what you do in that, in that market because there's less competition. But it's also really tough to have a bad business when you're cyclical but you don't have any debt. Because debt's what kills you in cyclical businesses, right. ultimately. So, again, okay, so you own a business. You can't predict the future of the commodity. You know you have tightness in supply. And you know you can't go bankrupt tomorrow. Wow. Again, you're taking out the negatives. It, it, most of right. investing is a negative art. And so I, I look at the coal business today as, okay, do any of those bright 22-year-olds in Canada, the United States, wake up and say, gosh, I want to become a coal baron. I want to make a pile of money and become a billionaire <laughs> in the coal assets. No, that does not yeah, happen. No. So again, we competition. Who are you really competing with? Um, let's use the big U.S. managers or the big Canadian managers with who they serve yeah. and the institutions they want to work with. Can they own those assets? And the answer is no. So who are we competing with? Well, we're competing with hedge funds that have a duration much shorter in their investment cycle than we do. Great. 
I like that. In other words, it's, it's disintermediation. It's the wrong owner. Right. In terms of timeline, um, we're a, a slow owner. We like owning things for a long time. So again, we're just continuing to get it down to where there's fewer and fewer investors that we compete with. And those hurdles are probably gonna be easier to overcome. Back to your point earlier, when you started off by asking about tech, you know, debating whether tech's cheap right now, it's like a million yeah. people have answers on that. And you know what? I can't be one in a million. I just know that. Therefore, if I can be one in 10, my odds are way greater of having investment success when I buy a stock. That's, that's brilliant, Cole. I, I uh, you know, to put it that way, I think, I think, you know, we're, we're, because we're, we're human beings, right? We're behaviorally challenged by, by, you know, recency bias, confirmation bias. You know, we, we, we look at tech and we say, well, so many of these tech names, you, you know, um, are down 50, 60, 70, 80, 90% from yeah. their February 21 peak. Not enough. Right. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> but, but, you know, what were they worth in the first place aside from the fact that, you know, they're, very high duration stocks, yeah. like extremely high duration stocks in a market where, you know, duration, <laughs> duration risk couldn't have been higher, Correct. Uh, you know, given that we were heading into, you know, a period of rising rates. Um, it, it gives a whole new meaning to, was it, we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Correct. Right. Um, so, Cole, I wanted to, I, I thought today we would have time to talk about uh, your conversation with Margaret O'Mara mm -hmm. on your podcast, but I think we'll leave that okay. for uh, Raise Your Average. I think sure. that'll be, that'll make for a great conversation. yeah. On, yeah. Um, very, very interesting. I wanted to ask uh, you about Glencore and yeah. tech because, you know, at least by the accounts, it looks like, you know, Glencore is seeking to take advantage of ESG in order to justify its its bid for tech. Yeah. What yeah, are your thoughts it, on that? So I'll give you I'll give your listeners a book, uh, The King of Oil, which is the story of Mark Rich, and you have to read that book. Okay. Um, I think I think that book really intensified my interest in in this arena. Um, you know, I read it years ago, but it made me wake up and ask the question, well. I didn't know you could get that wealthy in commodities because there's just not that many examples, okay? And um, I think the story of Glencore, now by the way, the Glencore is, just to take everybody back, their IPO was timed at the top. Those people are very smart. They sold their stock into the open market at the dead flat top, okay? That was 2011. Right. Um, by the low in Glencore was 16, which was the low in metals and mining in general. Um, so fast forward to today where Glencore is the 800-pound gorilla in commodity markets. They know better than anyone how to trade those. They know better than anyone how to buy those and own those, okay? Um, and then you have tech resources, which, I mean, I think back to 09 where tech's like, you know, market cap less than a billion. It was a tiny company because of the circumstance around it, but is effectively a um, copper mining business and a metallurgical coal business. Right. And it's, you know, obviously uh, uh, controlled by the Cavill family. So, What's happened is techs come in, uh, the Cavill family said, hey, we want to spin out our, our thermal coal, or our, pardon me, our metallurgical coal business, which they were going to refer to as Elk Valley Resources, EVR, uh, I assume was going to be the ticker of that, um, because they wanted to detach it from the copper. Think of good commodities, bad commodities, right. okay? That's what we're going to. There's this dual commodity world that we're moving to, okay? So that was their hope, but now here's the catch. 
You think, oh, you get away from Met Coal, you want to get as far away from it as possible. Well, that wasn't true. Um, someone called this greenwashing in a discussion like this. I wouldn't disagree with that. I would just right. call it uh, disingenuous conversation. Um, but but uh, what, what, what tech was really doing is they were saying, we want to get away from the coal business so that our investors can own the copper assets. But right. they weren't getting away from the coal business for seven years through a royalty structure. Um, and then also preferreds that they don't. So they can completely control this business, but at the same time, um, you know, they were supposedly out of the business, okay? So that's all going down. We were actually doing a lot of research on the EVR part because, again, it's gonna be left for dead. That thing is probably gonna spin out, get obliterated because there's gonna be no market cap and you're not gonna get meaningful cash flows for years. So you flip and you have Glencore call up and say, hey, we're gonna put a number on that coal business and they valued it at roughly $8 billion, and then right. they're gonna go out and compete to figure out what the, the copper assets are for, are worth, okay? Well, here's what it does. To your point, we know the price of everything, we know the value of nothing. Here is someone setting a bid on the coal asset that tech currently owns. We think it's worth $8 billion, great. We got a benchmark for what a private market buyer would wanna pay for that business. And what tech would like to do is they'd like to merge the coal businesses together. Now, I was we were we were talking to someone again in this learning process. You know what what is the how strong are tech's coal assets? How strong are Glencore's coal assets? Well, Glencore, the folks at Glencore are geniuses in the coal market. Okay, they have the top quartile assets in that industry right. versus tech doesn't. But at the same time, you'll create a business that has you know the largest scale in the world in the coal business, far and away, both from a market cap perspective and a capital investment perspective. Um, so we think that part of it's very interesting. And what, we, we, what else we find interesting is, again, it highlights this duality to commodities. There's good commodities, there are bad commodities. But here's what's interesting about the Glencore side. Is Glencore getting out of the coal business like, in effect, tech is hoping to? And the answer is no. How mm -hmm. they would do that is it'd be a spinoff. So back to the Mark Rich book since I started there, The King of Oil. All the partners of Glencore that uh, uh, currently own the shares will receive their share on a pro rata basis of the spin out of the coal assets. In other words, Glencore wants to own the coal business. Glencore right. spends no money on their coal business. They pay out 100% of the income or free cash flow of the business. And it is not, I mean, this. I know it sounds crazy, but it will not be crazy as, as we're looking at this. As of right now, it looks like that business will be kicking off a 30% dividend more than likely, okay? Again, th this is, again, not because you're a genius, not because you're super smart, not because you've had to do analysis way greater, but because you as an investor or the investors you work for allow you to even do that work. Think about those businesses, make those investments. Um, so again, we're, we're terribly interested in Saga. We have nothing that we own on either side of this, but we're really interested to see what is left after this. Um, just to put some numbers on it, it looks like the EVR plus the coal assets of Glencore will be like a $25 billion enterprise value. Okay, now how much of that will be in debt? How much will that be in cash? How much will that be publicly traded market cap? We don't know. But again, we can see there's like $7 billion of, of cash flows, of free cash flow that could come off this. So, you know, what's our advantage? Well, we can own it. That's one of our advantages today. And then the second advantage is how do we not overpay for it? Right? That's, right, that's the other thing we have to our advantage, which to your point about, you know, are tech stocks cheap or not, the biggest you know, danger that's been is people just overpaid for assets. So we're going to the opposite side of the room, places the market that other people can't play, places that the indices don't own anything, 
and 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 extracting high returns. Um, some would call that mafia investing. I would agree with that. I mean, I want to I want to extract really high returns in places where other yeah. people don't want to invest. And that is one of the things we get today because of the ESG phenomena, because of the institutional investors that that want that so bad. If people want to get wealthy, which if I haven't said this on the podcast already, I want to get insanely wealthy and I want investors that want to get insanely wealthy. That's our goal. Yeah. Um, that's the fun part to this whole that's, story. That's the whole match. That's the whole shooting that's match. That's why right? we're here. That's why we're on yeah. this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, cool. That, um, that's fascinating. That, you know, I want to um, thank you so much for your generosity, the generosity of your incredibly valuable time. Um, it's been an enormous pleasure to have you on the show. I'm looking yeah. forward to our very next conversation on Raise Your Average. Yeah, and I, I I really appreciate the chance to uh, come on as well. By the way, I'll have to I'll have to uh, loop you in sometime when we do our quarterly book list. I'll have you on as our our guest host to a Book with Legs podcast and say, hey, what are you reading? Because we're always looking for recommendations, so we'd love to do that as well. Awesome, I would love to take part in that. Thank you. Awesome, thank you so much. Mm-hmm.